Hello and welcome. I'm Haney. I'm Simon. I'm Alexander. We are knee-deep in tech, covering the latest from the IT industry, with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 213, recorded on December 6th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. So, what's happened in the world of data? I saw that you had some great news items that I understand very little about, Haney. Yes. Well, they're more towards containers and things like that, so not mm-hmm. necessarily on the data arena. Uh, so, I have news from Azure Kubernetes Service, as well as Azure Container Apps. So, just containers this time. Uh, first, on the AKS side... Uh, there is the general availability of the Azure Blob CSI driver support. That might not say much to you right away. But what this means is that in container applications, you might have the scenario that you actually need to be able to persist data, even if the container gets thrown out and then you spin up a new container. You want that to be able to use the previous data that was available. So we have to have these ways in which we somehow mount data to our application so that it's able to use it every time, even if the container restarts. So this is one of those functionalities that enables you to host the data in Azure Blob Storage. And so you have this uh, storage driver that you put in to make that happen. And this was actually possible to implement previously as well but you had to do a bit of management work and deploy it uh, as an add-on. But now this is kind of a thing that you can enable in your AKS cluster like directly. And this is kind of the direction where AKS seems to be going that a lot of these add-ons become a checkbox that you can just say, hey, enable this feature or enable that feature. So it's then much easier to take into use. So does that mean you got it? <laughs> yeah, and I, I assume like you, you could also have container apps that do not need this if you don't have data that they need to access, right? Yes. If there yeah. are stateless applications, mm. then of course you don't need persistent data. Mm. But whenever you have stateful applications, um, if you're running a database, something mm. like that, then then you would of course need that. The, the only thing that confuses me a bit is that I, I thought this was like the bread and butter of... of of containers, you definitely need to mount persistent storage. And I hadn't yes. realized that it was that you needed to jump through hoops previously. Yeah, it, it wasn't like that hard to do, but now it's even easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, it is kind of we are in the Kubernetes world where some things are a little more difficult than just running a single container. <laughs> so that is also what it has to do. with. So Kubernetes, somewhat more difficult. <laughs> There is a reason why you might need to, like, I, for example, run some Kubernetes trainings at work, and there is a reason why that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. It's not the simplest services to get your head around, like, what is even happening here? Mm -hmm. (laughs) From that sales pitch (laughs) on to the next (laughs) thing that came into AKS. Uh, So there is a private preview for being able to back up your AKS cluster. And I'm really interested, of course, it is in private preview, so there's not a lot of information about it. What does this actually mean? 
So I am really interested to see what this is because like my own mentality has been before that, well, you shouldn't need that much backups of your containers because you have your container images. Yes, if you have some persistent data somewhere, you should probably back up that in some way so that you don't lose that. But the containers itself that you run, like you should be just able to, hmm? you know, use your container image and put it back up again. Maybe you want to keep the YAML file. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then also like the AKS cluster, at least I come from a world where we do a lot of this as infrastructure as code. So mm -hmm. even if your entire cluster gets totally messed up, there's a way to roll back and things like that. So I'm really interested to see what this means because it is describing that you can back and restore your containerized applications, whether they're stateless or stateful, and then also the data stored within persistent volumes that are attached to the clusters. So it's interesting to see what this will mean in practice and how relevant will this actually be in the containerization world. And of course, at least the backing up of the persistent volumes, that is really useful. So maybe there's some restorer capability there that makes it super easy to roll back or restore from your backup. Could it be that you're backing up to another region or something like that? That you don't want to scale it out? You just want yeah. to keep whatever you have in another region. But but again, I, I do think you're on point. If you do it as like infrastructure as code, if you're doing containers without infrastructure as code, I think you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I I would argue that Yes, it's kind of neat to back up your stuff, but storage takes care of itself in Azure. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. It is a private preview, so you do need to... There's a link uh, in our show notes. So if you're interested, go there. There is a sign-up form for the private preview if you want to test it out. All right, then we get to the Azure Container Apps, which is less complicated than Kubernetes. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> it is less complicated. So uh, within Azure Container Apps, actually, when I was reading the news, I got for a moment confused, like, weren't these the news I was reading last week or the two weeks ago? But then I realized that was about static web apps. <laughs> but there's a lot of similar capabilities that have come into container apps. Well, the first one is different. So... Uh, within container apps, you're able to create either an internal networking configuration or an external one. Mm -hmm. And it is what it kind of sounds like. If you have an external, then you can publish one of your containerized applications out to the internet. And then the other option has been that it's just internal, uh, accessible only through your virtual network. So then that would mean that you have an actual internal application that you don't want to expose to the internet. So now, in addition, we have this capability that you can add inbound IP restrictions. So if you do have those external endpoints, then you can restrict where the traffic is coming from. And could be maybe uh, applicable to situations where you're running like a, a development environment of your application and you don't want that endpoint to be accessible everywhere, but you don't want to have the networking configuration different than for your production environment. So this would be a more lightweight option to do that. Then there is two new updates regarding deployment. 
to container apps. So last time we talked about that you can now actually deploy to Azure container apps without a Docker file from the Azure CLI. So that is, I have to say that is really interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that and like it's kind of like bringing some of the app service capabilities where you don't need to have your application built uh, to be able to deploy it. But of course, you can still use a Docker file if you have those available. And now uh, there is more, you know, integration coming in with uh, Microsoft CI/CD tooling. So there is both in GitHub and Azure DevOps, there are capabilities, uh, built-in capabilities for deploying to Azure Container Apps. Within GitHub, there is a GitHub action for building and deploying your application to Azure Container Apps. And then in Azure Pipelines, those are just called tasks. So within Azure Pipelines, (laughs) you have tasks to build and deploy to Azure Container Apps. So you have kind of those built-in uh, blocks that you can grab into part of your pipeline so you don't have to write uh, custom Azure CLI code to do the building and deployment. But if you're using any other tool, remember you can just do do it still with any of those tools and use Azure CLI to do those steps that now are kind of these integrated components in GitHub and Azure DevOps. Yeah, that's it. Are we going next to Simon's corner of the world. So I will talk about some new features within Defender for Endpoint, as well as news in Intune, of course. So we have two new big features coming to Defender for Endpoint. The first one is that Microsoft had teamed up with an open source project named Seek that enhances the network detection capabilities within Defender for Endpoint. So Defender for Endpoint basically works in the way that everything that the endpoint understands and sees, it can detect. But sometimes it might not reach the endpoint or be configured in a way that Defender for Endpoint do not understand what's happening. And Seek adds additional features to that. So if you, as an example, try to authenticate on a port which Defender for Endpoint do not expect you to authenticate on, Seek will now enhance those capabilities and be able to show you more about what's happening on a networking level. So it's not a replacement for a network detection and response tool, but this enhances the data you get from Defender for Endpoint, and it will help you to detect threats coming from unmanaged endpoints or threats that are targeting unmanaged endpoints. So all the clients will basically look at the network traffic they see and enhance Defender for Endpoint with that. Uh, And this is actually quite cool because Seek were previously aimed towards Linux and Unix and Mac OS. There weren't a Windows version of it, but Microsoft together with the open source community and the sponsor of this open source project actually made it into a Windows service as well. So that's now being added to uh, Defender for Endpoint, which I think is, is really cool and it just builds on that they are the leader within EDR. The other bit that we are getting is that um, we have new abilities to assess firmware and hardware vulnerabilities using Defender for Endpoint. So that was previously something you could do with Intune, but to me it makes more sense to actually see that and find that within Defender for Endpoint. So now it will actually report on, I have an outdated firmware or my hardware, my drivers are out of date. And that that will pop up as a vulnerability within Defender for Endpoint. Hopefully helping you to patch that before something goes the wrong way. 
Uh, and again, that's part of Defender Vulnerability Management. So it will just give you insights into it. It won't remediate it. You still have to do that using some other kind of tool. But you will be able to get a lot more information on your BIOS, your firmwares, and your drivers using Defender for Endpoint, which is which is great if you don't have a, a endpoint management solution that can do that for you. Um, and the last bit is that we have three new huge features within Microsoft Intune. First, you might have heard that the store is going away or it's changing. So the Microsoft Store is changing yet again and will now be backed by Winget instead. And that is now available within the Intune console. So instead of Microsoft having sort of an own repository and you need to up upload apps and so on, you will be able to get new apps, even Win32 apps, from the Winget repository and deploy that straight to Microsoft Intune. Now, this is cool and it's great, but do you remember that this is not necessarily the most secure way of doing it? Because you're pointing towards a repository and things might change at the repository without you knowing it. And it's not curated the same way as the old store. So it's a great new feature. It will help a lot of organizations, but be cautious about that you might lose some kind of control but this is in the direction we're moving and other features related to this will be released uh, sometime in the future. The other new thing, and um, Alexander knows this because this is how our relationship work. I want to do something <laughs> and I, I can approve that, but then I always need to ask Alexander, do you approve of this? So multiple <laughs> which, administration. Which exactly. So that's why never something like, that's why... We never do anything fun. So we need now in uh, Microsoft Intune, we can have multiple administrators approve a new script or a new app before deploying it. So I create the script or I create the app. I try to deploy that to a group or assign it to a group. And then I can have multiple administrators approving that before it's actually take effect. Uh, question. Is yes. that in a serial fashion? So first yes. person A, then person B, then person C, and not uh, any of them can approve. So it, it turns into this this um, flow, so to speak. Yes. Uh, so you can set it up. So how many do you want and who should approve it? But yes, it, it the intention is that it should be a serial or that you should have multiple administrators. Just this seems to be a good thing. Cool. Um, but that also, again, goes back to this doesn't matter if you don't have your RBAC set up correctly. So if, if you think that this will help you if an attacker get access to your tenant, it, it won't. Because if you haven't built your RBAC correctly, they will just add themselves to the group or remove the approval flow. So it's, it's great. It will help you get a second pair of eyes or how many pair of eyes you want on a change that might have a, a, an impact on multiple endpoints. And the last one is that we are consultants, so we, we might work with other organizations than the one we work for. We, in many cases, are required to use our company phone to access emails or whatever it might be. But imagine that, that you need, you are a contractor and you need to have access to a line of business app on your phone, which requires a VPN connection. 
Up until today, that's been relatively complicated because you don't want to actually put out a full VPN client on a non-managed device or a device that you don't have control of. So what we now have in preview for Android is that we have Microsoft Tunnel for mobile application management. Basically, you can download an app, apply an application protection policy to it, which also configures a per-app VPN on an unmanaged phone, which I think is super cool. It, like, I'm not a huge fan of VPNs, but I think the ability to, in a very secure way, having a VPN connection for a single app on an unmanaged device is a very cool feature. Um, so I'm looking forward to trying that. And you also, of course, get like single sign-on, you get conditional access, you have every uh, other application protection capability built in still. So you can actually containerize a mobile app and have a separate protected network connection from that app to another organization's on-prem network. Cool stuff. It's a lot of nodding today. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, even <laughs> even though though I I ridicule Intune and don't work with Intune, those are really interesting updates, and and even I can see the value in those. Yeah, and I do think that those are like the the best updates for all of our technologies. When when we that do not work within each other's field understand the value of yeah. them, then it's probably a good feature <laughs> for for sure. It's yeah, that that yeah, that's exactly. a good point. So I'm, I'm going to dive into the, the Power BI news because the Power BI November update was an enormous one. Um, and I, I struggled to just pick a few of them. And I'm going to start with the, the most important one of all. It's not yellow anymore. It's green. What? So the, the, the accent colors changed from the Power BI yellow to green. And people went, yeah, that's cool. But there's a reason for this. This is actually a prereq for dark mode, which they have been working for a long time. Aww. And this is a big thing. And dark mode turned out to be slightly more difficult than they envisioned. Uh, but switching to green is, is part of going there. So dark mode is a thing, Simon. Stop shaking your head. No. But more interesting <laughs> things. So... Um, there, there's something called small multiples. Small multiples is essentially a way of taking a line graph with a number of lines and splitting it into a number of smaller, tiny charts, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. gives you the ability to quickly get an overview of, of the lines instead of everything being stacked on top of each other. Makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Challenge is if you have widely varying axes, then some all of them are, are going to go for the same axis, meaning that some of them are going to get good a nice line, some of them are going to get almost like a flat line because the resolution is not high enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you can uncouple them and have different um, axes. This opens up a can of worms and definitely read the, the news item because it can make your data more difficult to read, but it is a it, it's it's something that you can use if your data conforms to to it. So take a look at it. Is is my tip. Since I watched your untruthful data arts session, I know how this is being misused today. So I think it's a good feature. But again, you need to understand the storytelling and the how a person will read whichever chart you show them. Pretty much, and and you 
you you can i think the the biggest risk is by mistake mm-hmm. that you don't realize that one of the small multiples have another um axis mm. uh and thus you can see things that are not there or even worse you might miss things that are there so yeah can you add warnings to that so the the flow i'm seeing is that you have a line chart and i i guess you press it to to split it into many can you add like a banner when you do that and say hey notice that the axes have changed no you can't uh, but what you can do is is add a label just mm-hmm. add that on onto the the canvas to say that keep in mind that this and, and that's a good point mm-hmm. you definitely want to make sure that people if if you do something that is um what is so the fighter pilots have a way of saying it so it's it's either dangerous different or stupid, or some something like that. Um, I'm all uh, If you do that, which is a, you're essentially stepping away from what you always do, mm-hmm. uh, then you should point that out that mm-hmm. this, this is different. And then we have, and I have a lot of stuff to cover here. So um, dynamic slicers, field parameters came out a while back, and field parameters are kind of akin to magic. Field parameters enable you to have a, a parameter that, that defines which, say, say that you have a, a dimensional model and you have a number of dimensions and you can use the field parameter to change dynamically which um, of, of the um, dimensions that you're using for, for analysis. Instead of looking at time, you might want to look at, at customer and so on and so forth. But it could not do dynamic slicing, meaning that you could not update a slicer with the results of uh, or the, the data in the table. Uh, this is confusing to, to someone who has not worked with um, Power BI. I, I totally get that. So take a look at the, um, the news item because this one is huge. Uh, creating dynamic slices using fight and field parameters is an enormous ask, and this opens up uh, so many opportunities for completely redesigning how we interact with data. Now, it will give you a more complicated report, but that may or may not necessarily be a bad thing. There is also something that we've longed for so long, especially people working with, with direct queries, and that's the optimized ribbon. And the optimized ribbon is completely new. It gives you the ability to turn on and off stuff like data refresh. Uh, what happens if you're running a direct query? Well, every damn click is going to result in a query down to the database, and it's going to bring all the data back. And if your database is slightly larger than 14 rows, you're going to be here a while. And if it would have been possible to turn this off while you were designing your report. That would be fantastic. And voila, that's what the optimized ribbon can do, among other things. Another thing that came out, so I already talked about the evaluate and log, which is a way to to log and troubleshoot DAX, which is a challenge in and of itself. It's now there as are two new new, um, functions that are just bonkers to JSON and to CSV. So you now have a function inside of DAX to turn your data into CSV or to JSON in order to do um, troubleshooting. So I, I can see that someone will leverage this to 
manage to export CSVs from Power BI, which is not what it's supposed to do, but you can. Uh, I just read Toyson. Toyson? <laughs> <laughs> it does look that way. Yeah, it's, it's the new Toys R Us, I guess. <laughs> oh, God. I'll dive into the Synapse Analytics November Thank update you. as well. The biggest thing there, 77% faster Spark, which is a good thing because Spark in Synapse, what's not necessarily the fastest Spark in business. <laughs> uh, 77% is good. I would love to see more, but I guess that's that's always what you want to do. Yeah, there's a reason why it's intelligent data platform and not fast data platform. Yeah, let's not go into that. Uh, so another thing that never gets any love is the Azure Data Share. And there is actually a tool inside of Azure, or a service, I should say, that enables you to, to share data. That is not as easy as it sounds. And Azure Data Explorer now has something called table level sharing. And that is in place. Meaning that you're going to be able to share the data in place. You don't need to do a snapshot, which all the other data sources need to do. And then you share the snapshot. So we're, we're getting new, interesting ways of sharing data. The challenge is, as always, controlling access and controlling who's paying for the data egress. I, I can hear people go, why don't we just use an API? Because you do not use an API for data, <laughs> ever. I hate it. <laughs> APIs are great if you need maybe 100 rows. But hi, I want to have all your, your sales rows from last month, which are 6 million rows. And my API will give you 300 rows every time I ask for it. We're going to be here a while. That's a sticker. One simply does not use an API for data. Why? Well, yeah, might yeah. be. I can't even use that. So did you say that this is currently just for the Data Explorer data? The in-place sharing is mm. only for Azure Data Explorer. Yes, the other ones right. are using snapshots. Okay. Um, I've, I, I kind of was surprised as well. But yeah, th this is specifically for, for Data Explorer. And finally, there is a really interesting uh, blog post uh, which looks at the the DEP impact, so the data exfiltration protection, how that impacts Azure Synapse Analytics. Um, not going to go into details, but definitely take a look at that. Uh, it's on the the Synapse blog. Really interesting walkthrough of of how the the exfiltration protection works and how it impacts anything you do in in uh, in Azure Synapse. Then, I'll what are keep we going to talk about? <laughs> a couple of weeks back, Simon raised the question, how the heck do you choose which <laughs> database offering to use? And I thought, well, th this is something that I, I used to talk about. I used to have a session about this, and I think it's time to revive it, actually, because this is still quite a challenge. Yeah. So how do you choose your your for database choice. So for starters, do you want to use SQL? Or do you want to use PostgreSQL? Or do you want to use MySQL or Cosmos DB? These, these are difficult questions. Mm -hmm. uh, but let's let's say for the sake of the argument, otherwise we're going to be here until next week. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going to stick to SQL Server. Mm -hmm. 
So how do you choose which SQL server offering you want to use? We can start with the worst choice, <laughs> most likely, and that is running it on a VM. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to run SQL Server on a VM? Because you're going to be burdened with all of the crap that we don't want to have on a VM. Windows. What? Windows, <laughs> yes, that's part of it. But you need to take care of it. It needs to be um, fed, watered, um, petted, all those things that we don't want to do to our, to our VMs, to, to our uh, SQL servers anymore. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to run it on a VM? Well, there are a couple of reasons. That is still the only SQL server that is entirely uh, compatible and feature complete compared to on-prem stuff. Mm -hmm. There is no... A service offering that can give you everything that a an on-prem VM um, or an on-prem yeah. installation can. So that's one reason. Another reason, if if you want to run a SQL Server standard, you cannot do that in the service. So that's one of the reasons why SQL Server is viewed as somewhat expensive. So if you definitely want to run standard, well, then you have to run your own VM. But but in practice, is that really cheaper? Like, is it such a big price difference between running standard on a VM so that it would be cheaper than having a similar solution on any of the other platforms you will talk about? That's a great question. And the answer might surprise you because it is depends. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Very surprising. The, the, the biggest challenge I find comes when you do lift shift. Mm -hmm. Because if you lift shift to the service... Not always that you're going to be able to do that, but let's say that you are. You probably haven't done any optimizations, and mm -hmm. then it's going to be a lot more expensive running it in the service. So then we have the next level, which is the managed instance, which is abbreviated MI. Mm -hmm. And MI is also the abbreviation for myocardial infarction. <laughs> Or heart attack, which is what I think most people will get from the the uh, managed instance. So the MI is is fantastic for very specific use cases. Mm -hmm. It is extremely expensive in my view. It takes a long time to set up. We're looking at hours. Yes. And if you tear it down and you want to set it up again, you're in a world of hurt. But that's a different story. But for specific things it might be absolutely what you're looking for. It gives you the closest resemblance to running SQL Server on a VM without the darn VM. And there are aspects of it that you cannot get anywhere else. Cross-database mm -hmm. scripting, for instance. There's so many databases that were developed on-prem that rely on the ability to query other databases. That, that's normal uh, on-prem when you split things up. Trouble is, that's not doable in Azure SQL. It is doable in managed instance. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you run, run it on VM. So managed instance, take a look at it, but be very, very certain that this is the tool you want to use. It's never, in my view, the first choice. It's like the choice that you're left with when everything else has been discarded. And I, I happen to find that a lot of organizations I meet, and I don't advise them on data, but I sometimes advise them on Azure, have that as some kind of, they are very proud if they can move to managed instance because they feel that they have modernized their database in some aspect. So I do think it's like 
this is probably one of the most important things you have said the last five minutes. Like, it's a lot of things that isn't good. So don't see it necessarily as a evolution, more of a necessity. Is that correct? Well, technically they are correct. They they have definitely modernized because they turned their their old school stuff into a service, and mm-hmm. it can auto scale and and do a lot of sexy things. But the the flip side of that is, while most people that do lift and shift that lifts and shifts to a VM, they mm-hmm. know in their heart of hearts that this is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. We we don't want to stay on this VM because mm-hmm. it is not the future. But people that do it to the MI go, yeah, mm. we've we've done. Exactly. And yeah. they don't realize that they are essentially paying through the nose for mm. something that they probably could re-engineer and put on mm. an Azure SQL instead mm. and get access to all the other interesting things. So I personally think that MI is a stepping stone, mm. but it is a stepping stone with the Quagmire feature that makes you stick in it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Isn't it that with managed instance, you always also have to specify a virtual network and subnet where you deploy that? So you kind of have this aspect of, hey, you actually now, right from the beginning, you have to design your virtual networks and ensure that you have the right connectivity from the get-go. For sure. And there have been a number of issues with that. So you're, you're, you're doing a lateral step instead of a forward step into mm. simplicity. The Azure SQL is dead easy to work with. MI, not necessarily so. You, As you point out, you need to know your networking stuff and, mm. and a lot of other things. So yeah, it's a tool. Be aware of the, the limitations and be aware mm. of the, the features, but do not always go for MI, which unfortunately is something that I've seen multiple times uh, that salespeople have gone to, oh, mm. you want to put stuff in, in Azure? You should run it on MI. And if if Microsoft people go, well, you should run it on MI, a lot of, of uh, customers are going to listen to that. And I think that yeah. is unfortunate. Always remember that some people are paid for an increased Azure consumption. Um, some people, well, that's what Microsoft gets. They, they are, yeah, they are... I, I, I don't want to point fingers. I'm just... <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and there there's always an agenda, and that that's a good point. I mean, don't take whatever I say as face value either. No, I I have an agenda. I have a, a, a an opinion. But currently, so, you don't earn money on increased Azure consumption for your customers. Not in the slightest. No, exactly. <laughs> that's a huge difference. So if you're yeah. buying licenses from my company as well, we we do sell licenses. Like, if if someone says something, do remember that there might be an agenda around it. For sure. I personally don't care. I, I always actually say what's, Have an agenda. what's best. <laughs> yeah, but that usually includes Fika. Ah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's why I, that's why I hate working from home. No one, I, I have no one to Fika with. Care for what you wish for. You just might get it. <laughs> so then we have Azure SQL. And Azure SQL is actually one of the oldest components mm-hmm. of um, Azure, mm-hmm. which shows. Because you have the, the two uh, original ones, uh, GP and BC. So general protection was... <laughs> general protection, that was fine. Protection. Uh, yeah, that, I, I, I don't know where that came from. 
general purpose. General purpose, general yes. performance, <laughs> or, or grievously poor performance. No, general purpose. <laughs> um, and it is exactly what it says on the tin. It's, it's a general purpose, jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. Uh, fairly cheap, very easy to set up, and it um, is decent on most aspects. It is not good, in my view, at all uh, at I.O. I.O. Is, is generally terrible in Azure SQL, unfortunately, meaning that you have a lot to gain by optimizing your I.O. patterns in Azure SQL. Having said that, BC, or the business critical, is much faster, but it is also much more expensive. This one has, instead of remote storage, it has local attached um, SSDs. So much faster again, but it's it's going to be more expensive. And I found a couple of examples where we had like 12 processors general purpose, and I didn't really need the amount of CPUs, but I needed the IO. And unfortunately, <laughs> the IO is scaled uh, concurrently with the, the, the CPUs. So I was able to turn that into a four CPU BC, giving <laughs> me better IO performance and essentially paying less because the licensing mm. is per, per CPU. So don't don't get stuck and, and be prepared to fiddle around with it mm. a bit because you might find a savings where you, you were not expecting it. And then we have the hyperscale. The hyperscale suffers from the worst marketing in history <laughs> because the, the thing with hyperscale when it came out was this can do more than 100 gigabytes. And that's awesome, but that's not the point in my view. <laughs> hyperscale is a complete redesign of the underlying architecture for SQL Server. It decouples storage from compute, which is something that SQL Server has been needing for years and years mm -hmm. and years. So it is essentially a faster SQL Server with better scalability and cheaper. I would recommend everyone to look at hyperscale first and not just go for, for GP or, or BC. So hyperscale is definitely one thing. Hyperscale used to scare people because you could only upgrade to hyperscale. You can go from BC or, or GP, but you cannot go back. Mm. That is no longer the case. It is somewhat convoluted. It takes some time, but it because it essentially means that you're, you're tearing down your database server and, and building it up again, but it can be done if you, for some reason, don't want to run hyperscale. Does hyperscale also like have the same improvements on the I/O side that we get, for example, going from general purpose to business critical? That's a great question. So hyperscale, you can see that hyperscale is between general purpose and business critical, because hyperscale has both local storage and remote page servers. So it kind of does both. Uh, that's how it can scale to more, uh, more data and faster data, um, essentially. And then it's decoupled from the CPU count as well. And I do think, like you said, the marketing aspect of calling something hyperscale will scare people away from it. Because if I were to look at it and say, yeah, hyperscale, I don't need hyperscale. I'm, I'm not hyper. It's like scooter, hyper, hyper. Well, you, you're, you're pretty hyper, but you probably <laughs> don't need hyperscale. I'll, I'll no, exactly. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a shame that they chose that name. Yes. Yes, I, I, I totally agree. Hmm. And then we have the, the single versus elastic pool thing. 
So you can put Azure SQL business critical or general purpose in a pool. This is where it really shines if uh-huh. you have a, a workload that supports this. So instead of, of paying for a single um, SQL server service, you can pay for a pool with X amounts of horsepower, if you will. And then you can stack just about how many SQL Server databases you want into that pool, and you're still paying for the pool. And as long as all the the databases don't need all the power all the time, you're going to be fine. So this is a way to stuff more into smaller amounts of money. I Mm -hmm. love the, the pool, but be aware that you probably need to have a cloud native application to run this Mm. it is highly unlikely that you'll be able to lift and shift if you can do it awesome but most people find that they need to re-architect their their environment Mm -hmm. and still you can save immense amounts of money so it's it's a really interesting uh solution to my knowledge hyperscale does not do uh pools yet uh it's been talked about for a long time but i i haven't seen anything about it Mm. quite yet and then we have the serverless versus provisioned. So serverless is kind of cool. Serverless means that you can automatically shift between half a CPU and I can't remember just how many, I think it's 64 CPUs these days, and essentially telling Azure SQL that, yeah, uh, if I want to use that database, uh, please start it up. And it's going to start in like 20 seconds and it's going to be running perfectly fine. If it needs to add CPUs, it's going to do that. And if I leave it alone for 60 minutes, it's going to go to bed. And if it goes to bed, it's not running, duh, but I'm not paying for it either. I'm paying for the storage, but I'm not paying for the compute. So for smaller, um, intermittently used databases, i.e. all my demo environments, Serverless is fantastic because I can set it up, I can have it ready at a moment's notice, but I'm not paying a gazillion for <laughs> it because otherwise you're gonna be paying for it every minute that it is running. <laughs> so serverless is really, really cool. Again, Hyperscale does not do serverless yet. It's <laughs> been talked about, but I haven't seen anything about it. Uh, so it's it's probably gonna get there, but uh, yeah. And in many ways, I think that serverless is going to be the offering going forward. There is yeah. really no point in having a sp- specific provisioned tier in, in in my view. I mean, you can just configure a serverless not to go to bed and mm-hmm. then you have a provisioned. So, And I think it's beneficial to Microsoft given that we still have some challenges in getting new hardware. So Microsoft is probably as interested in optimizing the usage of the hardware they have available. Um, and they, they like, yeah, they might earn a little less, but someone else will use it. So I, I do think it's uh, something Microsoft wants as well, an optimized usage of their cloud. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and that is essentially the answer to the, the question. How, how do you choose your weapon? How do you choose which Azure SQL you want to use? Well, it depends, duh, but it depends on your load pattern, mm-hmm. uh, your, your work, your kind of workload, and if you are able to re-architect it or do you need to lag around something that is 20 years old? Uh, there are a lot of options. Some of them are really good. Some of them mm. are, are less great. 
but there's a lot of options and I'm pretty sure that you're going to be able to find something that suits your specific needs. Don't fall for preconceptions. Mm-hmm. Don't look at the wording like hyperscale and go, well, that's not for me. So be critical and read up on all the, the, uh, the offerings. So that's it for me. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways that that's it for, for most of us, because we are, we're done for 2022 when it comes to, uh, uh, to going and, and presenting and, and traveling and stuff. All, I mean, it is December, so. Yeah, I'm doing my last yes. session tomorrow. So tomorrow from the day we recorded in, in Glasgow. Uh, so when this is released, I, I'm done. It's, it's kind of a weird feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's been a very, I think it's been a very hectic fall for all of us. Uh, I, I can't even remember how many countries I've been in or how many times I've spoken. Um, so That's why I have a website that <laughs> keeps track of that, because otherwise I can't either. Yeah, I have a C. I have a CSV file. <laughs> uh, of course you do. And we're not going to be talking about the the ins and outs of the CSV formats. As I told uh, a customer the other day, ah, CSVs, the horrible, horrible format that together with Excel runs all the analytics in the world. Yeah. True story. I think we should, uh, or we should, we will talk about our hectic year mm-hmm. in the uh, 2022 Christmas special. Yeah. That will be the next episode, which will be out in, in two weeks. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be out on, is that going to be the 20? Yeah. It's going to be the 22nd. Yeah. Yes. Um, really close to, to Christmas. So you can mm-hmm. listen to this while shopping for Christmas presents. That's going to be something. Could we, uh, pay to, uh, um, play last Christmas? In the podcast? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have enough money for that. And we don't want to um, do that to people. No, we don't want to no. Ramageddon two days before Christmas. Nope. I do think we're out of time <laughs> for this one. Did you, Simon, want to say about the one more topic or no. are we No, ready we'll, to we'll save that for the we'll save that for the Christmas special. Okay, Let's great. do that. Mm-hmm. That's good. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. And we will see you next time. See you next time. But bye-bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Need Even Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needypotech.com. 